Attention, this is not legal advice. If you are experiencing a legal emergency, contact an attorney or your local public defender's office. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Gin and Justice. talk about justice hey i'm justine and i'm amanda welcome to another episode with gin and justice it feels like it's been a little too long yeah it does feel like a long time hey leave us the review (laughs) (laughs) thank you to those of you who have been leaving reviews if you have not done so please go to whatever platform that you are using to listen to us and leave us a review give us stars give us a thumbs up whatever whatever rating system they have. Um, It helps to elevate the stories and the people that we have on here. It helps bring light to the parts of the criminal justice system that are not otherwise broadcast in traditional media, such as the true crime category, which we also categorize as true crime because we're really true crime. (laughs) Um, And, you know, on the traditional news They do not highlight stories of wrongful conviction. They do not bring to light all of these amazing stories that we have here. Um, The issues with mass incarceration, the conditions within the prison system, the school to prison pipeline, all of those issues that are super important to those of us who are passionate about criminal justice reform. Speaking of, we just got back from the Tampa Bay Criminal Justice Summit, and it was put on by a couple of organizations, the Florida Prison Reform Allied Partners, along with Horizons. Yeah, it was really great to be in those rooms with so many other people that are passionate about criminal justice reform. Yeah, it was an incredible day of criminal justice reform. It's always good to be in a room with other like-minded people, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to these particular issues. I feel like a lot of times it, it... feels like us against the world because Mm -hmm. you have a population that generally um, a good portion of the world or maybe the loudest portion of the world don't Mm -hmm. seem to care about. And so it was good to be in a room with leaders, senators, representatives, organizations, good people, family Family members, members. formerly incarcerated returning citizens, uh, formerly justice involved people. And just and also family members who are going through it right now. There were some speakers there that were just kind of in the audience that mm-hmm. um, hearing their stories, their painful stories um, yeah. was a good reminder of why we do this and to keep pushing forward. Yeah, so, really relit the spark. It was the spark yeah, we needed. <laughs> absolutely. And so in the coming weeks, we are looking to we were actually there and recording all of the sessions so in the coming weeks we will be speaking about releasing those specific panels they were incredible uh, all super interesting yeah a good variety of speakers um, on a variety of criminal justice issues so uh, keep stay tuned for that and uh, we look forward to being able to release those and uh, continuing to communicate with our new found partner friends. Yeah. So in criminal justice reform. With that being said, we are so excited for today's episode. Um, It was supposed to be released prior to the hurricane and everything that has come in the last, you know, kind of month for us. And so we are so excited to bring you today's guest. She has persevered through her own personal journey Mm -hmm. and has went forward in her education, got her doctorate, and now leads this organization called Safe Project, which stands for Amanda. (laughs) It stands for Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. Yes. And um, she is a person in long-term recovery herself. And I'm going to let her tell her own story and tell you about Safe Project. But we do want to mention that the link to the website is in the show notes. 
if you guys aren't aware, giving November, what is it called? Thanksgiving, giving thanks. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what? <laughs> Did you just ask me what Thanksgiving was called? No. <laughs> you know, there's like a day. Oh, no. Giving Tuesday, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, right? Anyways, I'm pretty sure it's called Giving Tuesday. I'll correct myself (laughs) if I'm wrong, but I'm almost positive that's what it's called. It's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and it is an opportunity for for people to kind of donate to their favorite nonprofits or their favorite organizations that are out there doing the hard work. And so um, we would encourage you. Safe Project is a great one that you can donate to. Yes. So we would encourage you to keep them on your list for Giving Tuesday. Yeah. All right, guys. So with that being said, we're going to go ahead and let you get to the interview. Dr. Dr. Brandy Brandy Esquerdo. Right, guys we are on the record this week we are here with dr brandy Iskirdo. she was just coaching me how to say it did i how'd i do you did fantastic <laughs> okay <laughs> and she is here with safe project so and we actually learned about her from our friend emil who was on the show back in may and so we're so excited to have you on we're excited to hear what you have to say You're welcome thank you for having me i appreciate it yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, and, um, and then we'll go from there. Fan- yeah, absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, Justine, my name is Brandy Esquierdo. Um, You said it wonderfully. And I am the executive <laughs> director of uh, SAFE Project. SAFE Project stands for Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. I think more importantly, I'm a person in recovery uh, from substance use, mental health, and also the criminal justice system. So I think right. that's probably why we're here. <laughs> justice involved mm-hmm. <laughs> i just took a language matters workshop so i'm that was to, perfect you know brush up on the justice involved you did good you did good <laughs> language does matter so i appreciate you taking that yeah so you were formerly justice involved what was that like tell us about that how'd you get in the justice system <laughs> Formally and, and pretty much still attached to it. I'm not going to um, not say I don't have felonies. Uh, we know what that looks like. So that's a little bit harder uh, to get out of. Um, but a lot of my justice involvement, uh, you know, I was basically that mom who never thought this would happen to her, um, you know, raising children, um, the visual, visualization of the fact that I need this white picket fence and it's going to be great and grand and I'm going to do wonderful things. And the next thing I know, I found myself in um, a concrete cell. And a lot of that had to do not necessarily with, you know, with my charges in terms of uh, substance use or drug related activity. Well, some of it, I'm not going to lie there, um, which we can get into a little bit further, but it started off, you know, quite frankly, um, as an indirect result, my incarceration as an indirect result of my, uh, my substance use disorder, and also, um, you know, domestic violence, um, and just getting caught up in the systems, and you know, just found myself in a place that I really didn't want to be. But um, it was a real uh, life lesson, <laughs> and uh, I'm now out and on the other side. I call it the flip side, <laughs> and just kind of navigating and advocating for individuals who were justice involved, who are still justice involved. Um, and who carry that burden or that weight on their shoulders long after they're out of those systems. Yeah. And it's kind of like the dustpan line. Does it ever really go away? Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it never really does. I mean, it creeps up on you um, when you least expect it. And then there are a lot of barriers associated with like employment or, you know, what, what you have the capability of doing um, in society. Um, and once people find out, um, how they look at you. So there's a lot of stigma attached. Absolutely. And it's crazy because, you know, since we started the show, it's, you know, we try and pull statistics in whenever we can, but I think Amanda, is it a third one of third. the population? One in every three people 
yeah, is just as yeah. involved or has a conviction. And so it's crazy that there's a stigma attached to it when there's so many people, you know, I right. certainly have plenty of people within. And if one circle. in every three people does, that means everybody loves somebody that does, you know? Yeah. It's, it's just typically not your topic of conversation, right? It's not right. like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I have former justice involvement. How about you? It's not, right. you know. It's not <laughs> well, it's talk. our topic of conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think at a normal uh, dinner table though, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So what was your experience with the justice system like? You know, if, my experience with the justice system, I, and I'm, is it okay to get kind of raw here? Yeah. Oh, please okay. do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Perfect. I actually we don't just like came to like push of... people any more than they want to, but we are however comfortable you much. are. Yeah, we're good. Definitely. I'm a high revealer. I'm a law, <laughs> law enforcement, and criminal justice involvement have given me high revealing capabilities. <laughs> you know, honestly, and I'll, I'll I'll go way back. Um, not necessarily on the substance use side of things because I really want to humanize um some of this and how we end up in the justice system. Uh, or me specifically, I'll talk about me, but you know, when I was uh, younger, probably around seven, seven, eight years old, um, I was molested. And what's interesting about that is I didn't, it was a lot of the neighborhood girls that were experiencing the same thing. And I, you know, was a, a don't tell I'm stronger than that even back then. Um, and because of that, I didn't say anything. And I remember, um, I'm going to date myself now, but I remember the ugly brown couches with the flowers and stuff, right? We had that in our house. Uh, this was probably back 70 early, early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a knock on the door and there were two law enforcement officers there. And these two law enforcement officers let my mom know what happened. And when they let her know what happened, you know, the look on her face, the shame I felt from that. And then the officers came into the house and they had a doll with them and they sat me down on that ugly couch and they said, let us know where he touched you. And I tell that story because my first involvement with law enforcement was very traumatic, um, very degrading in many ways, um, and just started this level of vulnerability for me or just like this feeling of shame initially. And I don't know if that was imprinted on me or what, but, you know, I just, I always felt like a bad, dirty person. Um, so there was a lot of trauma involved in that. And from that experience, I really propelled myself into a lot of validation with men, um, substances, uh, just really just packing down that pain um, and not having any self-worth or integrity. So you know, from there, that was really the experience. And every single time, you know, I got into a relationship or, or I was in the relationship and every time I called out for help from law enforcement in terms of domestic violence, no one was there to help me. Um, so, you know, it just catapulted from there. And I went deeper and deeper into my addiction, uh, had untreated mental health and trauma and probably some PTSD. And I know I'm very organized and it's not really organization, it's OCD, <laughs> just to have some type of control over my life. So those were my experiences with law enforcement. So, you know, my first reaction um, to getting arrested was just another level of guilt and shame that brought everything flooding back. Yeah. And it just, it continued from there and I just drove deeper and deeper into my addiction. So I think, I think that's how it happens for a lot of people. Yeah. Unfortunately, it does. And it's not here. I'm not here to bash law enforcement at all. Um, I, you know, I, I actually work with law enforcement quite a bit because there are some good people in, in that field. They're good. Um, and pardon me, I know, Justine, you're an attorney, but when I got <laughs> into all of my, my trouble, so to speak, um, I was really apprehensive about, we called them public pretenders, not public defenders, <laughs> because we didn't know the system that well or what what people in, in that world were facing in terms of barriers or capacity and, and all of that. And being in, in that, I was actually um, housed up in Adams County Prison. And when I was up there in that in that prison system and I was talking to all the other women, you know, it was like, not what are you in for? 
it was more what happened to you because I know we're not bad people. We, there are just some circumstances that we get into and, you know, and I started talking to them and I was realizing, man, these women are just like me in so many instances. And there are certain circumstances that come up, um, that, that have them led them to this part of their life, but it doesn't have to be the end. Um, so that's how that all kind of transpired. And, and I, got out. And I remember at the end of when I did get out that I looked back at them and I said, I'm coming back for you. I don't know how, but I'm coming back for you. Um, and that's really what, what led me or propelled me into the career I'm in today, getting my doctorate, um, really studying criminal justice and the cross section between behavioral health, um, and speaking up and speaking out. And, um, I've learned not to be quiet, quiet or silent anymore. Um, so I, I consider myself a mover and a shaker, which in many instances may be a troublemaker, which is fine. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's been my experience. And, and I just, um, I feel for people that are behind those walls because I know there are circumstances. And quite often, if you look at the trauma that's attached to it, they too are victims um, or victors. I prefer to call myself a victor rather than a victim. <laughs> Love that too. Yeah. So, and I, I just, that's just been my life work ever since then. I've just continued to move forward. And that's how I met our good friend Emil. And, you know, it's kind of like we have this, this former justice involvement camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, yes. you're there too. too. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty cool. And that's that amazing. will always, that will always yeah. be there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing your experience. And, you know, we, when we talk to people, that's so often they'll talk about their point, whether it was being incarcerated or whether it was being, you know, whatever trauma or kind of that, I don't like the term rock bottom for various reasons, but you know, that's the point when it's like, oh, this is the what I'm supposed to do. And it really does, like mm-hmm. you said, it propels you into kind of the path that you're in. And so I love hearing those stories and it's almost like you're kind of reading a story in your own story you have this, you know, incredibly sad or um, distraught event or series of events that happen in your life that bring you to this point of where you're looking at yourself, okay, yes, all of these things happen. What am I going to do about it? Mm -hmm. So I just love hearing about those turning points. They're always so, and they're always so Mm -hmm. common people. Yeah. Inspiring and common. Cause it's like, okay. So it just really does give hope to people who are in that, who are still in that part of their journey where they haven't quite hit the turning point. And it really does give hope that you really can come out of anything. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I uh, thank you. And I appreciate having the space to do that because quite often we don't get that platform. So it's nice to have that story before the story. Um, And you know, what's interesting too, is that when I, obviously I was on probation, um, in and out, in and out on probation. Like I don't, I'm excited now not to be on probation and I can leave the state. (laughs) So I travel all the time now. Right. But when I had my probation officer, my, he was amazing. And I say that because, you know, when we talk about authoritative figures, you know, it's, it's always the fear, like, oh my goodness, I'm going into this probation office. Um, the what if, what if, what if, even though you know you're not doing anything, it's still the oh my goodness kind of scenario. I get that from walking past a police officer, so <laughs> I can't even imagine. I'm like, do I, do I smell like <laughs> right. something? What's happening? You know, and so I'm, I'm constantly in fear. And that, that, has, that feeling has not gone away, even though I'm in this work and I do this work on a consistent basis. Granted, I have the tools now and the knowledge where it's kind of like, come at me, bro, come at me, because (laughs) I I at least know something now. But I will tell you, when I was sitting in the probation office and really creating the plan um, for my probation, he looked at me and he said, I only know one other person that was successful. Um, And that really spoke to me because it, it challenged me, but it also gave me hope that he believed in me. You know, my mom, my family, they all are like, you can do this, you can change. But it's when someone outside that you have high regard and high respect for believes in you, that it makes all the difference. And that's like, for me, why when I train law enforcement, it's it's not the tools 
or any of that that you have to offer in that community-based setting. It's the actual believing in someone and caring about them enough to have a conversation where you all are on an equal or level playing field. And that, that really sparks some kind of internal change, which now, you know, makes me want to work with law enforcement prosecutors, yeah. you know, defense attorneys, like, let's do this together. <laughs> and we're laughing right now because my husband was kind enough to bring me a Starbucks Aww. coffee. So that was pretty exciting <laughs> if you hear any ruffling <laughs> in the background. <laughs> Usually <That's> he knocks. <laughs> Very sweet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a good one. By the way, when we talk about the domestic violence, I'm now divorced. I will say that. And I was able to work through that. And um, I actually I'm married to another person in recovery. Um, So that's that's a nice supportive network as well. Yeah, that's great. It's nice because um, so often, you know, we hear, you know, don't be 13th stepping or, you know, don't don't be somebody else (laughs) because, you know, they you know, there's this belief that if one person tumbles, you know, the other person will. However, uh, I've seen people in recovery, I think, have such a unique spiritual perspective on life. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, despite what the naysayers say, I think having somebody in recovery is important to understand a very unique spiritual perspective in life. Or you have to like Absolutely. be really close to someone in recovery or like understand it. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, a lot of us live by cliches, you know, don't leave five minutes before the miracle or, you know, I personally, <laughs> there, there are a lot of um, pathways to recovery or pathways of recovery. Uh, yeah. mine's, mine is really evolved um, in these little pockets, right? So I may have, you know, obviously I told you that I got my doctorate. So I have people that support me through my academics, but, you know, my root is always the people in recovery who understand And know, you know, know me inside and out at a different level that can really continue to support me. And I will be honest, my my husband and I um, actively use together. So nobody thought we were going to make it right. You know, but (laughs) the reality is it's really all about um, making sure that you can support each other, but work your own recovery. Yeah. You know, and so he supported me even through all my criminal justice stuff, because even when I got into recovery, I got locked back up again. So that was interesting. It was <laughs> kind of knew the system a little better at that point. Um, but yeah, I, I and I had I was actually facing um, a year and a half to four back or uh, with a seven year backup time in Adams County or in Pennsylvania. And I was still facing 11 years in Maryland. Yeah. Um, and that was recovery and it was um it was scary real scary i think i think people you know people who are not justice involved or who aren't super familiar when you're on probation okay you may have you may be put on probation because you stole a car right and then you're put on three years probation you may be doing great but maybe you're late to something or you miss an appointment because who hasn't missed like i miss stuff you know that's I am not a stranger to missing and like or being a lot of things. probation off. A lot of probation officers are not kind, you know, and they do no. not let you be late. That counts as missing your appointment. And so now you're going so. up the road for three years, not because you stole this car, but because you were late to your appointment. You know, so the like, violations. Yeah, and yep. that's it's like that. Even we talk about that in relation to like the sex offender registry. It's like, you know someone did their time and then now they're on the registry and they forgot to update their license plate because that's like the last thing I would think of when I'm making sure that my car's valid and you know you yeah. get a new license plate every 10 years oh but now because I didn't update my license plate now I have a, a brand new felony and I'm facing you know five years in prison or whatever so yeah yeah and we get that a lot um we get that a lot in the substance use arena you know for me even what happened to me i'm still an advocate for individuals um who have sex offenses because quite often even if you talk to them um there is some type of trauma or again that victim Mm -hmm. aspect of things and it's extremely hard to get them the help that they need like you can't live within a certain radius of a school or a playground and you know, they're all over the place. And, and there's almost about- no services to prevent a situation from happening. So No, no. And when you, when we're talking about substance use, um, you know, and the, the correlation between the two, there definitely is one. But trying to get individuals into treatment is extremely difficult. 
recovery housing, it's, it's basically impossible. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of different layers of the criminal justice system. And one of the other areas that I advocate for uh, tremendously is uh, violent versus nonviolent offenses. Mm-hmm. Now, I will tell you for my domestic violence charge, um, it was so interesting because this was kind of like the last draw of trauma for law enforcement. Um, my ex-husband was choking my daughter um, kind of like movie style with her flip-flops flopping. And I bit him. He was a big guy. So I bit him. Called 911. Um, I, there is a 911 call out there with the recording. Um, and then when the officers came, they locked me up because I left a mark. Now, mind you, I understand the system well enough now with the domestic violence that as soon as I got into the jail cell, my bruises, my finger bruises started coming on my, and I actually called a cadet over in the holding cell and said, you need to take pictures of this. So the charges were dropped, but they're still on there through the Maryland judiciary. They were. So that could have looked like a violent offense. Yep. You know, so again, there are circumstances and the problem quite often comes with barriers to substance use treatment and access to treatment. That if you have a violent offense, a lot of times uh, you are not amenable into specific programs within court settings. And you get lost in the sauce. So it becomes a huge issue um, between that. And then also one of the other areas um, that I talk about that many don't are life and long-term sentencers. You have individuals behind those walls who are parenting, who are family members and friends. And statistically, 95% of them come back out into the community at some point. Um, And there are no resources behind those walls uh, for individuals. you know, who are serving life for long-term sentences. It's a forgotten population. And I wasn't too far behind them. So I think about that because I know being locked up, um, you basically, you really have no one, you know, it's, it's, it's such a scary, scary thing to experience because you just don't have a voice. Your voice is taken. So that's why um, I speak up and speak out because if I, if I can say anything or bring attention to it, I'm going to do it because, like I mentioned earlier, I, I leave no one behind and I'm coming back for you. Yeah. So. And so we talked about, um, you know, ju- barriers once you have that conviction or once you have that justice involvement, but you have a doctorate. And so <laughs> was it hard? Well, I know that. So, you know, one of the things that convictions can affect is um, student loans. So the Mm -hmm. the government will not give student loans to certain convictions or felony convictions, drug convictions, even if it's a misdemeanor marijuana conviction. Um, Yeah. So was it difficult um, kind of setting yourself up to go to school? Were you able to get funding? What was that like? Yeah, I was able to get funding. Um, Luckily, uh, the 11 years that I was facing, um, I ended up getting a PBJ, probation before judgment for anyone that doesn't know. Um, or it's not peanut butter and jelly. Not peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I did get a PB and J for that. Um, so when the box comes up, I don't have to say that I was convicted of that. Mine are um, different charges, indirect charges. Um, uh, I'm a federal fugitive. So that's pretty interesting. Um, so I'm a federal fugitive. And then I also um, altering documents. Um, so yeah. forgery, stuff like that. So anything I like, I'm very apprehensive about people signing my name now because mm-hmm. I'm like, don't do that. That were my charges. It's traumatizing to <laughs> do that. Um, so I didn't have a, I also had a school and chose a school that was very understanding. Now I will tell you, Justine, I did, um, when I said I was coming back for those women, my first line of attack was actually to go to law school and even going to law school and building out um, your personal statement and all of that. And then I had to have all my criminal history and, you know, you, you are taught, you take accountability for it um, in, in your spreadsheet and all of this stuff. So I didn't get in um, to law school and I honestly believe that spiritually, maybe the universe was working in a different direction because I love research. And so it was, it was difficult, but it wasn't too difficult. I do. I did attend the University of Baltimore, um, which is more lenient. I was always very open and outspoken, even on call, on the campus, about my former justice involvement. Um, 
And that's actually what I built my dissertation around. So that was a little easier for me. Some people, you know, are a little more apprehensive because of the, you know, the, there's a lot of movement out there in terms of the ban the box in college applications. Um, and it really does depend on your charges. Um, yeah. I know for the Pell Grant, it's a little easier if you don't have direct charges in terms of um, drug convictions or any of that. But they're starting to do a lot of work to try to overturn some of that in, around the Second Chance Act. Yeah. Um, so that, they, yeah, so that they're, they can have, um, education behind the walls. I mean, this is really what it's built on rehabilitation, right? Right. Right. So let's rehabilitate. One of our first episodes, we talked to someone from the ACLU and she was like, it's supposed to be the department of corrections. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I will say too, with the law school thing, it's, it's so just, I mean, just like applying and going to law school and then taking the bar, that's all traumatizing anyways. Like that's all right. the whole process, but you can go to law school. You can be accepted. You can go, you can pass law school flying colors. And then you have to apply to be in the bar of whatever state you're wanting to practice in. And then you're like doing it all over again and they may not accept you, um, right. or for whatever reason. And so, um, so yeah, so that's like a whole mess. That's a whole mess. <laughs> Well, and that same scenario goes for what's very interesting. That same scenario goes for social work. You may have a criminal history or anything around counseling. I can tell you firsthand, I do, um, we developed a forensics cur curriculum. So these are individuals who with lived experience in just, or who have been formerly justice involved, um, providing peer support, boots on the ground type of work. We were training the state of Virginia. The state of Virginia has barrier crimes. So, for example, you may have um, lit a field on fire, right, when you were younger, got arrested for it As because it's com <laughs> my, my cousin did that, kind of. Who doesn't do that? My cousin started a fire when he was a teenager. It was like a big deal. Arson's a huge, another barrier. Yeah, it's definitely another barrier. It was on the news. So. <laughs> Well, he's not going to get into some recovery houses. I can tell you that. <laughs> so. But with that, with the barrier crimes, what's interesting is they can't, individuals who have former justice involvement in Virginia can't necessarily work um, at the community-based services organizations, which are behavioral health organizations, but they can work in the criminal justice system, which is weird. Yeah. Right? yeah. Weird nuance. So a lot of this is, I mean, the, the rules and regulations associated with, um, criminal justice history are just so complex yep. that you set yourself up for something, which is why I got my doctorate in public administration, because I want to make the rules and propose the bills at legislation for the lawyers and the social workers to follow. Mm -hmm. So that's the table I need to be at. And that's why I went in that direction. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. This, and that's what I do that's Amazing. <laughs> every day. <laughs> so with that said, tell us about Safe Project. Safe Project. And Safe how did Project. You, how did you get there? <laughs> like, Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Honestly, by chance, and I'll give you a just quick rundown. I, um, I mentioned the peer support when I came out um, of jail and, and out of the Adams County prison. I knew I wanted to give back in some way or shape or form. So I actually um, started off in peer support and I was providing direct services. I was actually working in drug courts, child protective services. So I lost my children when I was in active addiction. Um, and obviously, you know, I had justice involvement. So I was working in these same systems with these same people on the other side of the table. And then from there, I went over and I said, hey, the state kind of accepted me as an employee with a federal um, or a felony background. So I continued that path and went over and uh, worked for as the director of um, consumer affairs for the state of Maryland's Behavioral Health Administration. Felt really cool because I had a state badge. I'm like, I'm a felon and I have a state badge. <laughs> but for me, you know, it was all about following some of the money. So I knew where a lot of the money was going um, for community-based support. So I went to a local behavior health authority and started working there. And I oversaw all the mental health and drug courts. So I went from working in them to overseeing them. 
um, and learning all the ins and outs and the nuances because the only way to change systems is to infiltrate them. Then I went to the national scale. I was working at Faces and Voices of Recovery, and that's that legislation portion that I was talking about. Um, I was the director of advocacy and outreach, and I was working on policy uh, and things of that sort. But I didn't want to pigeonhole myself in um, into just the recovery bubble because I knew that recovery had to be at all tables, not just the recovery table. It's kind of like the kitty table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I continued to move, and it was really interesting because this organization just kind of, I actually featured this organization while I was working at the other organization. And then this job came through and I was like, well, I'll never, I'll never be able to get that. You know, it's the executive director, I'm running stuff. Um, But I put my hat in the ring and luckily the former executive director is a huge uh, advocate for women. And just to tell you a little bit about Safe Project, um, they work in all different aspects, um, you know, safe veterans, safe workplaces, safe campuses, and safe communities um, through six lines of operation. And if you hear me saying all of that, it sounds like military. Well, lo and behold, it is. <laughs> because um, it was actually formed in, um, it, start the, it started its inception in uh, 2017 when Admiral Sandy Winnefeld and his wife, Mary, lost their son, Jonathan, to an accidental overdose on a college campus. And when I say Admiral Winnefeld, um, Admiral Winnefeld was actually the former vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States, second highest ranking military officer uh, in the United States. And yet they didn't have um, the tools Um, and they would say this themselves to help their son. And I, you know, when I interviewed for it, I didn't understand the magnitude of his position and her position in, in, in the, in the United States. I just knew that they were a mom and dad who lost their son and I wanted to help. Quite often you'll see in organizations, um, you'll have your recovery organizations, your family organizations, and there can be a little bit of a rub there. But for us to really overcome this epidemic, we all need to work together and in tandem. And that's, I got the call from Sandy. I still have his message saved on my voicemail because it was a monumental moment for me. I felt like I I could do really good here and do good work for others here. And that's what happened. And we've just been building this thing out ever since, you know, um, building on some of our community initiatives, bridging prevention and recovery providing training to individuals who have former justice involvement, um, boots on the ground style, doing uh, crafting wellness, veteran wellness training, um, so we can help veterans, you know, developing a a training for veterans, by veterans, and in the campus space, having our collegiate um, recovery leadership academy, uh, so we can bring and, and leverage leaders in the recovery community from a collegiate space um, and really fight back on those ban the boxes and and anything else that's happening throughout the nation. So we just really work hard. It's like four mini nonprofits and I'm exhausted every day, which is why I'm glad we're not on video because my hair is a mess, (laughs) (laughs) but I love every minute of it. You know, Um, every time I have a conversation like this and I know the work that I do in this space it solidifies that I am coming back for those ladies in some way, shape or form. I'm coming back. And we've just recently gotten into the juvenile services space um, because, you know, addiction and, and mental health kind of um, are genetic and are passed down from generation to generation. And I found my son in the juvenile services system. I'm like, Oh crap. Let's lawyer up. That's my first response. Right. Don't say anything. Just get a lawyer. Good but response. I realized that that was, yeah, <laughs> we did really good. Um, my old, my old habits came back strong, right? Uh, well, you're up. They're always there. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice because that is another missing gap. We, we will talk about the adult system and, you know, everyone understands the trauma in youth and young adult, but we don't target the juvenile services system and get them there before they get to the adult system where it's a heck of a lot harder to get out of mm-hmm. than if we kind of give you the life skills and the tools in that juvenile services system. So we are currently working on the final stage of our uh, safe uh, connections program, and we're going to start targeting the juvenile system. Um, you know, and and I'll just end with this, Justine. In, 
in the youth and young adult, we can't talk about recovery because they don't know what they're recovering from and they may not identify. I mean, we have, right. you know, um, marijuana, cannabis, whatever we want to call it on the streets right now, everybody's doing their thing. So it's really important for us to really start to have those conversations with youth and young adult. Like, do you want to stay out of jail? I can help you do that. Recovery is a bonus. Um, or I understand you want to smoke weed. Uh, let's talk about fentanyl and, and not using pills, illicit drugs. You know, let's keep you alive. Let's talk about harm reduction. Let's talk right. about carrying Narcan or Naloxone. Um, we just need to shift the narrative and start having conversations with our young people. It's so scary. I'm so scared for my friends with children yeah. these days because when I was a teenager, I remember it was scary, the drugs that were going around when I was a teenager, what you could get. And now it's like everything has fentanyl in it. Everything. Like, you, know, you don't know. You don't know. And I know um, I know. I may not be a, a, a cop or law enforcement, but I mean, I laugh all the time with my cop friends and I'm like, I send bolos out, you know, be on the lookout. Um, I love using that acronym. I don't know why, <laughs> but as, as a matter of fact, it's so funny because before I got involved in any of this or my active addiction really went, went I went deep into my active addiction, I actually was slated to become a Baltimore County police officer. Um, I was going to actually become a police officer, probably not mainly because I was young and I thought that the, the, um, uniform was hot. I'm like, <laughs> I actually put my hair back in a ponytail and be hot and pull somebody over. But that's probably not the best reason. To a law <laughs> oh, the tales we tell. Um, it's way hotter to be a doctor. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like, yeah, it, that's the scariest thing. And, you know, even working in this field, and, you know, I tell my kids all the time, but every single time they walk out that door, you know, I have a 15 year old and a 20 year old who live with me. The other two, they're on their own. They can do their thing. But it just, you know, it scares the hell out of me. And they know they have the information and they have the tools. So I've just got to, I'm constantly vigilant on reminding them, hey, you know, I understand you're doing this, but you know, just be really careful on what you're doing out there because I want to keep you alive. It's my mom goal. Yeah. 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 And I love that you guys are starting that with the youth. And I think it's so important because um, I actually became involved in a 12 step program when I was a teenager. Uh, I was mm -hmm. court mandated. It was a family law issue. And they said in order for me to, you know, live with the parent I wanted to live with, I had to go to a 12 step program once a week. And as a teenager who kind of grew up in chaos, to me, it felt like here's another thing I have to do because of other people in my life that are, that I can't do the right thing. Yeah. So you know, I was mandated for, I think I was 17. And then when I turned 18, it ended. So I was in the program for a little over a year before I was not mandated anymore. And I'm so thankful. Now I've been going for 14 years. Um, and it's, it's really a way of life and recovery, mm -hmm. even not being in A or NA, but just from being in the family member uh, program has really helped give me that drive and that ability to connect with other people in recovery. And, you know, especially my clients who are in recovery, um, just being able to have that connection because it is, it's like a secret language. It you is. Phrases and you say things that you know. And I just remember being. Oh gosh, I was probably in my early 20s. I managed a coffee shop. It's probably my late teens, early 20s. Managed a coffee shop. And um, we used to have um, our food delivery guy. He would come in and he was much, much older than me. But we would always have these really great conversations and we would connect really well. And I couldn't figure out why. And we had um, a discount program for the guys who were in the halfway house down the road. So they would be able to get any size coffee for a dollar. And so they used to come in and they were really replacing, you know, going to bars with coming to the coffee shop. And it was also across from where all the 12 step meetings were in the town I lived in. So they would come and then hang out and it would be all people in recovery. And so we had uh, this, you know, our food inventory guy, he would come in and he would sit there and he'd have lunch. And, you know, I couldn't quite figure out what the connection was. And then one day I was dropping a friend off at an AA meeting and there he was mm -hmm. standing outside and it's like, that's what the connection is. And just being able to have that connection with other people, even though I'm not in the same program, but being able to connect with um, family members who are in recovery on that level and speak that language 
um, and just being able to have that with other people, because I think the recovery community is, I'm biased, but I think it's the best community that we have. And I, I wish everybody was in a 12 step program or some yeah, type of recovery yeah. program, but, um, so I just love that. And I think that if it didn't, if it wasn't required for me so young, I don't know that I'd be where I'm at today. Um, cause I, you know, had a lot of chaos and trauma and all sorts of stuff. And if, I don't think if I got into recovery that young that I would be here. And so I think it's so important that you guys are developing that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we are pretty awesome communities. It's kind of like that. I call even for the women, it's like the sorority that I never had. Right. (laughs) But you know, and my son, I used to take him to meeting my son and daughter. I used to take him to meetings. And as a matter of fact, my husband celebrated back in May and he, he came to a meeting with us because they always show up. Those for are us. the best meetings. Yeah. And he <laughs> sat in the back of that car. I mean, we, we went to a, we had a 10 o'clock meeting at night and it was a candlelight meeting and he was so excited. Um, my husband was, you know, the kids are like, Oh, I got to go to a meeting, but they still showed up. And, and my son, after he was finished with a meeting, he told me, he said, I miss these meetings. I need to go to meetings more often. He said, because they just give me so much energy. And, you know, so even though for him, he doesn't identify, there are still feelings and help and principles that we all live by that he's been exposed to at a very early age. He was three or four when I got into recovery and I would take him to meetings, even when we had child visitation and all of that. So, I mean, it's just, these are just skills that the whole goal is for them not to have to necessarily follow a path of recovery, but follow a path of wellness Mm -hmm. that they don't have to get to that point. You mentioned the rock bottom. What is rock bottom? Right. 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 (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm not fond of that term either because we can have many (laughs) rock bottoms, you know? Right. So just having those skills at that youthful age and not treating our children like they're fragile or naive um, because they surely aren't. And you ask anyone in recovery when they started using, Mm -hmm. and I will guarantee you it's 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, those ages, not high school. And by the time at that point, it's really hard to pull somebody back through. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Then they end up with you. You know, <laughs> where do we go wrong? Well, yeah. So can our listeners donate to the safe project? Heck yeah. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Absolutely. I can give you the uh, website. As a matter of fact, we always have the donate button. Don't all nonprofits, right? Um, it would actually be safeproject.us. So and we'll plug I it in the show notes as well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. I really do. And and I really appreciate you all hanging with me until uh, till we got this podcast up and running. I'm excited. Oh, my gosh. Well, that was like the universe, right? So for our listeners, we have like scheduled and rescheduled this interview so many times between COVID, family, COVID this, that. And uh, so it finally came to fruition, probably right exactly when it's supposed to. So absolutely. I needed you. I needed you um, tonight. So I appreciate it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so. I know you provide, you said you guys provide trainings and resources. Is that something that, um, you know, perhaps either drug courts or other organizations can reach out to you guys for? Absolutely. Um, we, again, we do trainings, resources, technical assistance and support. You name it, we can actually uh, guide you through that process. And we do that all over uh, the nation. So it's really about filling those gaps and seams within systems um, and using our subject matter experts in each of our portfolios uh, to really guide people across the finish line and and continue to move this uh, forward um, to stop the addiction fatality epidemic. It's not just about opioids. It's about all addictions Mm -hmm. um, and then also the mental health world as well. So, yep, reach out to us and we will do what we can. If we don't know, if we don't know something, we know someone who knows something. Yeah. So. It's a, it's a unified effort and collaboration. I love that. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, now that the world is familiar with a pandemic, right. I think it's a little (laughs) bit easier to understand what an, you know, epidemic is and the amount of people who die every year from overdoses, which has steadily increased every year. And I think 295 a day, 295 a day. 
a day. Unbelievable. And that's what we know about, you know, so. Right, right. And that's the one, and that's not even including the people who are able to, you know, get Narcan or support to be revived. Right. Well, and it's interesting. They came out with a new statistic um, for every one individual that overdoses um, in some states, uh, 15 more have non-fatal overdoses. Wow. So we ha- there's a huge opportunity there. We just need to provide the resources and tools and access to care yeah. um, to help. And also reducing that stigma on harm reduction. You know, we have talked to um, recently Morgan, who is a harm reduction advocate, and it's so important and just kind of wrapping the youth into this um, younger people. I think a lot of where we're at with younger people is to stick with that, you know, Nancy Reagan, just say no. And that just doesn't work. And like you said, by the time they get to high school, by the time you get to your twenties, it's just that much harder. Um, and that many, the neuroadaptation has really taken part in the brain at that point. <laughs> so Look at um, you. I think just reducing the, uh, yeah. So I did my, um, it wasn't a dissertation. It was, what do we call it? Thesis on, mm-hmm. Uh, addiction and on the importance of treatment courts back when I was an undergrad, but I I did a whole like section on neuroadaptation. And I just recently went to a conference. It was for treatment courts. It was uh, mental health courts, veterans courts, drug courts. And there were a lot of, was it the NACP? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was the first place I ever presented. Really? When you were talking, I I was like, I wonder if she was there. (laughs) I wasn't at this one, but I had to actually call my probation officer to go over to Anaheim, California to leave the state to present on uh, peer support and drug court. I did my dissertation on drug courts also. So, yeah, wonderful. Love that. So cool. (laughs) See, the universe does that. It's meant to be. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyways. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. I'm glad it finally I, worked out. I got oh, it. Amanda's question. not done. Sorry, she has her last question. I usually let her take it. <laughs> if our listeners could take one thing from your interview, what would you like it to be? They could take one thing from the interview. Um, individuals with former justice involvement are probably the most compassionate, empathetic, intelligent people you will ever meet. We just need to channel it in the right direction. And once we do that, sky isn't even the limit. Anything <laughs> is possible. So just just keep pushing. I Couldn't love that. Agree more. So inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Caught me well, off. Thank, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And we are adjourned. We'll see you next time on Gin and Justice. All editing for Gin and Justice done by Gin and Justice Podcast. Artwork by Justin Cardone. Photography by Kimber Schwakey. We'll see you next time on Gin and Justice.